if we were to move to a plant-rich diet, the carbon savings and the climate smartness of that change in our food system, again, is equivalent to roughly, based on the models, a threefold increase in carbon um, capture over any adjustments that we make to agroecological practices in the field. That's not to say that what we do on the farm doesn't matter. It matters enormously, but it is important that we see the breadth and the magnitude of the challenge and the, and the things that are going to really matter. And certainly when it comes to agroecological practices in the field, it's going to be the foundational change in the cropping system that will drive all else. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label, distinguishing organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. We're continuing our conversation today with Dr. David Mortensen, former National Organic Standards Board member and head of the Agriculture, Nutrition, and Food Systems Department at the University of New Hampshire. Today, we'll hear about Dave's time on the NOSB, as one of the board members who opposed the organic certification of hydroponic crops back in 2017. He'll also share his thoughts on the rise of corporate regenerative agriculture. As I said, I met you when you were serving on the National Organic Standards Board. You were uh, the scientist representative at the time. And um, I, I was going, probably for your whole tenure, I was attending uh, the NOSB meetings. I started just about the same time you did. Uh, there were people who had been attending these things, trying to represent real organic. We didn't have the term, but they were trying to represent organic as the movement intended it to be. And um, actually, they were steadily losing uh, and really starting in 2010, which is starting with Tom Vilsack. And I don't mean that he was the worst of the secretaries of agriculture, but I think we started to lose then because organic started to actually mean something in the marketplace then. And as it continued to grow in the marketplace, then people coming in and, and wanting to uh, take advantage of that market uh, also grew and their influence grew and it, it started to be a real battle. And I think that was uh, the OTA looked back at, at in 2020 and said for the last 10 years, not a single recommendation of the NOSB has been acted on and put into rulemaking by uh, the National Organic Program. Well, that's 10 years, that was 20 decisions that you all made, and not one of those decisions, and I know how much work you all put into that, not one of those decisions was acted on, and the, probably the very first of those to not be acted on was to prohibit hydroponic from being certified as organic back in 2010. So could you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you coming into the National Organic Standards Board as, you know, I assume hopeful, as a hopeful person hoping to make a change? 
I did come in hopeful. Uh, I came in admittedly naive about the National Organic Standards Board and the National Organic Program, not, not completely unknowing, but naive about, about the way that it functioned and <clears throat> the extent to which the recommendations um, from the board resulted in change. Naive because I did see actually where, where I was before, before the National Organic Science Board, all of my work in DC and in the policy space, most of it was on this reducing pesticides and you know pushing back on GMOs. And I was certainly conducting research in organic. We eat organic at our house. We, you know, um, I teach about it and all of that, but um, I had really gotten deep into the policy space on the, on the, uh, on the, um, trying to make conventional agriculture more ecologically sound. And what I found disillusioning early on was that the board would set or make, not just make policy recommendations, but would actually write the, uh, do the analysis on, uh, and write up what, what the change should look like. So that's not just making a recommendation, we should change something, right? That's, that's one thing and you could, a lot of us could recommend to change things. But for people to take a year or two years or five years to write a document that is very thoughtfully crafted and where panel sessions, multiple ones over years of time are convened to inform and clarify what the issues are. What are the paths to resolve those issues? What are the impacts of taking those paths? Um, and then not to have those recommendations acted upon was something I had never seen before, actually, because I had seen how the recommendations in commodity crop production were acted upon. They just were acted upon in a way that I didn't agree, but they were acted upon. You know, these, these just, just would sit there. And, and you would find yourself wondering, gosh, you know, what are we actually accomplishing here with this when they're not being acted upon and taken seriously? Hydroponics being one, the livestock rule that we spend so much time on, on being another. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's a, a really unfortunate disconnect that exists between uh, the work of the National Organic Standards Board and the work of the National Organic Program. And um, honestly, and you know, from what I've seen of commodity crop production and decision-making and the interface between the board and NLP, it's, it's actually shares many of the same qualities that I observed um, of USDA and, and EPA's 
um, unwillingness to really think about the solution set as the, the Europeans talk about solution sets and they have this way of analyzing, well, we take this solution set or that solution set, you know, ways that we set policy. What are the factors? What are we going to change? And how do they interact? That's the solution set. Um, that we're not looking at the full set of solutions and then taking action that's going to be action in the best interest of the environment and um, agroecological farming. Yeah, I, of course, I, I became... I became convinced that we weren't going to get reform that we had hoped for. It appeared to be uh, a policy entirely guided by large corporate interests. And I just couldn't see any way that we were going to, we, the organic movement, were going to persuade the National Organic Program that really they should, they should follow the law as, as, as it was commonly understood. Um, and it was interesting. Of course, Jacksonville, Florida was the big meeting where um, the NSB actually didn't vote to support the organic movement. You did, uh, but, uh, and that was a reversal from seven years earlier where it was whatever, you know, 14 to one saying hydroponics should not be permitted. Mm -hmm. And now it was eight to seven, essentially saying it should be. That wasn't technically what the vote was, but that is, that was certainly the message. Mm -hmm. And it was the message to the members of the board as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know that the board, it, it was interesting. So that board was entirely chosen by Tom Vilsack. Uh, you know, he had been secretary of ag for seven years at that point. It's a five-year term. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those were his folks. Um, and, you know, people have told me that the board had changed considerably. There were always still people like you and Emily Oakley and Francis Tickey, but, but it used to be that everybody was like, like you guys, mm -hmm. that they were really were organic advocates and they really were people who understand organic and, and you know, were part of a movement. Mm -hmm. And it's become much more corporate since mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw a group of people who were very confused about what we were even talking about mm -hmm. when they gave their their reasons for why they were voting, the people who voted against that proposal had the most outlandish reasons. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, I, I w as I said, I was naive. I, I, did, I didn't go back to study, you know, exactly when I came on the board, but this was either the first meeting or maybe it was the second, but I, I didn't, appreciate um, because it seemed so obvious to me that um, there was nothing about hydroponic production that fit into the uh, organic um, food production act that it, it just didn't even, it just didn't even occur to me you know, it was uh, it's it's not allowed in Europe it's not allowed in Japan it's not allowed in Canada um, I, I just, I was quite naive actually, though I, I, I was, it was clear as we got closer, you know, the four or six months leading up to that Jacksonville meeting, it was very clear that, um, uh, my more senior colleagues, Francis in particular, 
uh, was saying, you know, we really have got to be sure we have our A game, you know, go into that meeting in Jacksonville because there are some people on the board that are going to that are going to vote in favor of of hydroponic being uh, allowed. And then we would start having these meetings where we were the whole board where you were hearing things like board members saying, uh, and then I realized just like how, you know, this, this is more problematic than I realized. Like where two members said during discussions uh, with the group, um, if it, if it, as long as it doesn't have GMOs and synthetic pesticides, I'm good with it. That was, that was the view of two members of the, of the, you had this, uh, other view that, um, that, you know, we needed to make organic available to as many people as possible. And who are we to, um, you know, be the, the gatekeeper of access to organic. And that if we open up the gates to the methods of production, the price would come down and more people, uh, it was a food justice issue, uh, which I also take great issue with. And we discussed and debated that. Um, um, it's the same reasoning for why you should allow all that chemistry. Oh, yeah, agriculture so it's, exactly this, it's exactly the same argument. It's exactly the same argument um, and why we need it. And, and you know, and, and yeah, so... Um, so it was shocking, you know, to see how things went went down there. Like, because I was the reason I got on the board was on the board, is that several farm farmer friends of mine um, had, you know, asked me, "Would you be willing to do this?" And I said, "Well, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to be on there, but certainly, you know, I know a lot about the subject, and and I certainly support you guys, um, you know." Um, but, um, Mike and Tara Brombeck, um, the Brubaker family, um, and others, you know, Jim Crawford were folks that had been such kind participatory farmers in the work we did together, um, had opened their places up for my classes, um, had counseled me on things that they were concerned about in organic agriculture that needed attention and needed to get the university on the ball with that. And I got very involved with Rodale. So to um, go from that perspective and then be sitting there, you know, having folks argue that, you know, pretty much anything would go in hydroponics was sort of stunning. And since then, I've actually had the opportunity to get into and see or read about, see, visit places, you know, where that spans the range. And it, and it, it could, it, it, it certainly could be certified organic if they alter their nutrient source. But places where the plant and the seed are never touched by human hands. Can you imagine that? <laughs> a vegetable system where no human, and this is part of the allure of it, right. 
from a marketing point of view. Um, you know, so there could be no, you know, foreign microbes on, on the leafy greens, etc. but where there's no contact with a human, uh, that's a, that is a worrying dystopian sort of thought about the future. So, and in fact, no contact with soil either. Uh, and certainly no contact with soil. <laughs> I mean, that goes without saying, right? But, but the idea that it could, no contact with soil and no contact with humans, that's, uh, you know, anyway. So it's, it's, it, yeah, and so it just goes against, you know, when we, when I, st when we were starting out the conversation on, you know, how do you think about agroecology? Um, you, t you take a terrestrial plant out of its environment, which is the soil, which is what it's evolved to grow in with these deeply complex feedback systems and ways in which the roots communicate with the soil and the microbiome, this, this myriad of um, fungi and bacteria and algae in the soil and they're talking to one another and they're, and the plant is growing and the nutrients are being taken up because the microbiome is working in concert with the rhizosphere of these plants. Um, and for us to think that plopping a plant into a nutrient solution or spraying a nutrient solution on a rhizosphere is the same thing, um, is so deeply flashlight science and so arrogant of us uh, that we th would think that that, you know, that that is in the long-term best interest of human wellness. Um, and certainly to think uh, that it's in the long-term interests of this multifunctional ecosystem services way of thinking about agriculture as a fool's errand. Uh, I, I, I said once uh, when we were discussing this, you know, I, I, I just find it's easy to get caught up in things that we, we, we lose sight of the big picture, right? The, you know, on this subject of what is this hydroponic system that we're looking at? Here the board could get lost in discussing um, how much of a biofilm can be comprised of, you know, a fossil fuel derived, you know, compound versus all natural bio-based um, materials in the film and I would sit there and be scratching my head and thinking, like, we're gonna scrutinize, and I'm not a proponent of lots of plastic in agriculture, but we're gonna scrutinize the, the um, biochemical makeup of a plastic film over a tiny fraction of the field. And we're not going to ask questions about the Tigon tubing the styrofoam floating trays, the, um, you know, um, Teflon this and Tyvek that, um, where the plants are actually not grown in anything natural. It's all synthetic materials um, is mind boggling to me.
it's it's so um, incongruous, and and so there's there's a real problem with uh, science. Some science people call it a sensitivity analysis, like like focus on the stuff that has the big impact, and then focus on the stuff that has the small impact later. Um, the idea that we are not seeing the big impact of hydroponic is that it's an entirely synthetic system made up of a myriad of synthetic things devoid of any coupling with ecological processes uh, and then we get lost on some smaller thing is a problem that I think is inherent with uh, maybe, maybe with wicked problems that people think are too big to solve. And so you focus on the little ones. Um, but I found myself feeling often that we were, we were having this struggle where we would focus on the little things. And to me, the sunset list is the little stuff. Like I'd, I'd much rather see technical people um, spend more time and let the board work on some of the bigger stuff. But um, that's not to, not to demean the importance of the sunset list, but you know, we, were, we were just spending there's so much to do. Yeah. You've got to figure out how you're going to devote your time in a way that it's being devoted to things that matter more than other things. Yeah, yeah. It seems like they've completely actually blocked the board from even looking at the big things. Yeah, now. yeah. So thank you for uh, giving me a little bit of a uh, your vision sitting on the on the board of of what was going on and you know something that we all struggle with. Out of, that, out of that decision, of course, was born the Real Organic Project. And in fact, all the farmers you mentioned who guided you to be on that board are part of the Real Organic Project. And, um, and you know, they're, they're actually all, all part of our pilot farms, our very first 65 farms that joined. And, you know, the Real Organic Project is just what it says. We're, we're trying to talk about real organic. And that's not done with uh, contempt or, or uh, uh, arrogance. It's really, what, what do we mean by organic? What does the world mean? What have we always meant? And it's not change. I think the things that you describe, David, are in fact the work that remains to be done, which is infinite. And when you talk about studying systems and seeing, well, how do we optimize or uh, make those systems work better, that's, that's the real work that needs to be done, not figuring out how to use Tygon tubing for whatever, you know, Zygon, you know uh, uh, all of that. Let, let's tie the two conversations together, the, um, the struggle for real organic and uh, the effort to, um, the attempt to make conventional more um, ecologically sound, which is, I think, what the regenerative movement started as. And, uh, you know, our, our symposium is really looking at, well, is regenerative organic? And um, we're pretty sure that regenerative, as it is now being portrayed in the, in the uh, popular culture, is not, is not organic. And I, I sent you a list, but I'll read through it just quickly, um, of the major players from Big Ag and Big Food who now very, very vocally um, 
promote regenerative agriculture, and, and it's, a, it's a chilling list. Um, it, you know, uh, Cargill, Bear Monsanto, Syngenta, Bungie, ADM, Pepsi, McDonald's, General Mills, Walmart, Nestle, Purdue, Hormel, Corteva, uh, Mars, and Land of Lakes. Lando Lakes. And, and I'm just curious, you know, I just, I just listed most of, the, most of the companies that actually control our food system and that dominate, define conventional agriculture. And now they're all saying, we're regenerative. Yeah. So what do you make of that? Yeah, there's this big movement over the last 15 or 20 years that I've seen in life in general, and that is that we've really gotten amped up about branding. You know, what's your brand? I get the sense that it's very important in marketing that your brand um, reflects something that you want your clientele to uh to see in you there is an interest that i believe is genuine and um as informed as it can be in a food system that is largely decoupled from where the production is decoupled from the people that um that So I, I believe that many consumers are very interested in um, the environment. They're very interested in uh, how their food was raised, how the workers that raised the food were treated, how the environment is being improved as a result of those practices. There's a lot of skepticism about this on the NOSB and in larger circles than that. Certainly at the USDA, there is. There is this notion that, you know, folks, they don't know the difference. They don't care. What, you know, why are you so worried about the GMO thing? Do you think they really care about the herbicide link and all of that? And I actually do think they care. Um, I just think that we don't do as good a job as we could educating the public uh, about things that they're decoupled from. So how would you, how could you care about something if you don't know a lot about something? The folks that know a lot about organic are very concerned about how food is grown, how workers are treated, the impact of those practices on the environment. Uh, and, and so I think from a branding point of view, these companies like the ones on that list that you read off know that this has to be part of their brand. We're all for the environment. We care about, you know, the way things are produced. Uh, and I think it's, these are claims that companies make like these companies. I don't think all companies 
do this because really what I'm saying is I think it's misleading claims about something that they're really not paying attention to. How could a large grain corporation, grain handling and sales corporation, or a company that has been working for the past 25 years on breeding crops to um, use herbicides and use greater amounts of herbicides in the environment claim that that's regenerative. How could, uh, how could someone honestly argue that um, a practice that they are responsible for having created and marketed that results in an increase in 70% increase in herbicide use and 16-fold increase in the use of dicamba that you can pin back to specific companies that are on your list. How could you, how could you claim honestly that that's um, regenerative um, and that you're concerned about the environment? So I think that's, I think it's misleading. And I think, I think what we need to be doing is doing a much better job of, you know, helping people unpack where is the truth in things that are being claimed? Where is the truth in things that are emblazoned with a logo, like organic, the organic label? in a way that helps people understand, you know, that if this, if these are blueberries from the Southwest desert of the United States with this label on them, with this company's tag on them, those are blueberries that are grown out of their own environment in a, in a manner in which is completely at odds with the or intent of organic production. So I think there's a real problem there. <laughs> there's a real problem where the branding uh, and the claims that are being made um, are not honest. And they also, um, for the consumer, are difficult to sort through because they don't have the information they need to make better decisions. Um, I think all too often that's happening. Great. Thank you. Um, well, let me tie it one last step then, which is tremendous amount of conversation right now about climate change. COP is going on right now. Um, USDA just gave away $2.8 billion, $2.7 billion of our money, which is wonderful, to try and address uh, issues of climate in yeah. agriculture. They call it climate smart agriculture. Yeah. Most of that money went to the people on this list. Yeah. yeah. So climate smart agriculture is the champions of this appear to be Bear Monsanto and Syngenta and Cargill. These, these, these same companies that, in my mind, have created the problem. What are we to do with that? I mean, do you, do you think that they're going to change? That, that getting, you know, 80 or $90 million from USDA, that there are going to be some radical new experiments going on to really stop using 
uh, all the pesticides. Uh, one of one of the of course one of the great claims going on, and this is great because you know you're you're uh, essentially a plant ecologist is is that all of these companies are championing no-till, and that no-till is better for the climate because it's not creating such rapid oxidation of organic matter from the soil. <clears throat> Have you thought about this at all? Yeah, I have thought about this a lot. Um, and um, early, early on, uh, I had a very wise, more senior person tell me, Dave, do what you can to um, address the bigger question, the foundational question that is driving much of the system rather than tweaking dials for much of your career. These very thoughtful words from this person uh, who had spent 35 years and I was just kind of getting kind of on the early end of getting started and uh, I'm sure I tweaked some dials along the way but but it's very important to look at the foundational sort of conditions that really drive much else if, you, if you're just going to focus up sort of on, on the bits above the foundation uh, the likelihood that you're going to change anything of substance is very small. Um, the problem with investing a lot of money, and this was a lot of money, I, I had the opportunity to chair through for three or four different years a chaired competitive grant programs in DC where we gave out amounts of money. And, and, and in those days, like we're going to, we got a panel and we're going to give out $3 million. Well, that sounded like a lot, but really when you spread that out across the entire United States, that's not much. This, this program was 55 million to this one, 98 million to that one. Yeah, these were big awards that were being given, um, to drive things. And, um, much of that list that you've read off, Dave, is basically um, the commodity crop, largely Midwestern scene that drives the 160 million acres of corn and soybean. Um, the foundational problem that we have is a grossly oversimplified agriculture with one or two crops. And we've tried to manipulate pest populations and fertility and, you know, um, soil preservation and conservation in a system like that, um, where um, the magnitude of response is highly constrained. We can do a little better with nitrogen. We can do a good bit better with 
pesticide use if we made the right decisions, which we haven't been making. Um, but what the problem really begs is a systems scale foundational change to agriculture that really much of that is outlined in the Organic Food Production Act, interestingly. Rotations of crops. The use of cover crops on most farmed acres. The Midwest is running at a whopping two or 3% cover crop adoption after investing federal funds for the last 20 years in driving cover crop use up in the Midwest as a carbon sequestration practice and a soil, uh, a soil erosion control practice. Uh, it's gone up maybe a half percent in 20 years. If we're not, and, and if we're going to say we want to do climate smart agriculture, you start with the rotations. You start with some degree of perenniality in the agriculture system. Grasses, forages, hay fields. Um, you start with field edges that are not seen as something to increasingly constrain and do away with, but actually um, nurturing the field edges, a practice again that's outlined in the Organic Food Production Act, cover cropping, rotation, um, incorporation of perennials in agriculture, um, disallowing the use of pesticides. All of a sudden, the pest cycles are, the, the management of that is on the backs of rotation. The management of that is on the backs of you know, creative indigenous knowledge by the farmer knowing which fields have which problems and which ones they're going to you know, strategically plan to do certain things to address a pest problem through a systems level solution. Um, so when I see that money being used in that way, what unfortunately it tells me is that we are investing in uh, a way to reinforce what is the corn soybean model and much of that acreage and where we will have uh, and, and I you know and I, and I give credit to folks the farmers and the researchers that will work together agencies that will work together to try to move the needle for example on cover crops but the truth is that's been something that folks have been working on for the last 20 years and in the last 10 or 15 with a concerted effort, cover crop councils across the Midwest, cover crop councils across the Northeast, uh, and we're not seeing the adoption to this. We, we wrote a paper on the state-by-state -state adoption of cover cropping that was in the, the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation, and it's, it's pathetic. And, um, you know, we, we really need bolder steps taken that lean into the ecological practices that are organic agriculture. I think if we had more farms being farmed organically uh, and um, they could serve as role models for 
folks doing conventional farming and they would be able to see, gosh, they are using cover crops and, and nobody else is using them around here. So maybe actually that could work. Um, that's, that to me would be a much better investment of, of those dollars. Um, I, I think another thing that, you know, that's, we sometimes miss, and I did a little bit of reading about this before coming up, Dave, that I just wanted to, to point out, because I, I think it is something that we sometimes miss. The agroecological practices are profoundly important, and I really do believe that they're laid out and have been practiced by organic farmers for all the while that we've, we've called it organic farming. Those practices that I was rattling off and many others. But we're also, when we think about a climate smart agriculture, I think we wanna take a step back and talk about a climate smart food system. Um, reducing food waste uh, as an initiative that is worthy of a great deal of attention. And by a number of models that have looked at this, reducing food waste is the top food-related um, would, would be if we were looking at this, you know, doing the sensitivity analysis, you, you would start there there's three times as much carbon to be gained in reducing food waste than any other agricultural adjustment that we'd make. And I'm arguing here that the foundation is cropping systems, crop diversity, and all of that. But even before we get to that, we would start with food waste. Um, we would also be debating and discussing and thinking hard about the diet that we consume. If we were to move to a plant-rich diet, the carbon savings and the climate smartness of that change in our food system, again, is equivalent to roughly, based on the models, a threefold increase in carbon um, capture over any adjustments that we make to agroecological practices in the field. That's not to say that what we do on the farm doesn't matter. It matters enormously, but it is important that we see the breadth and the magnitude of the challenge and the, and the things that are gonna really matter. And certainly when it comes to agroecological practices in the field, it's going to be the foundational change in the cropping system that will drive all else. And if we're not going to make that foundational change at the foundational level, level, and we're going to spend a lot of money reinforcing the current system that's in place, the opportunities for any adjustments in climate friendliness of those practices is going to be very, very small. Mm. All right. That's great, David. All right. That's right. Uh, there's a, there's a, a thing I have written on the wall of my office, which is, you know, it's like a story of a guy's out on his hands and knees under a street light, and a friend comes along and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my keys. I lost the keys to my car. And the guy gets down and is looking with him. I can't find him. He says, are you sure you dropped him here? And he says, no, no, I dropped him over there in the, in the bushes, but the light's much better here. 
And you know, there <laughs> yeah, it is. Are we are we yeah. looking yeah. for yeah. where we where we drop the keys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just where we think it would be easy to find them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or there's a there's a I have a plaque in my office, and I'm I'm, I'm I don't speak Danish. I only <laughs> fumble through certain things, but. It's one of these um, Royal Copenhagen, very pretty white plaque in blue ink hand down. And it's this, this person crawling around on the ground, not looking for keys, but is caught up uh, in looking at all of these small stones with this very large stone off to the side. And it's the same point. It, 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 it loosely translated, it's they who let the small things bind them leave the great undone behind them and i would say that the um you know that this this focus and fixation on commodity crop entrenchment of what we what we are doing right now is 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 going to have a very small payback um I, I know we should end soon. We're, 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 it's been a very long interview, which I really appreciate. It's great. Um, did, did, can I just ask for, for organic farmers who are tilling and they're incorporating green manures with it, and, and actually they're seeing their soil organic matter going up, do you see that as a problem for climate? Uh, you know, because the, the, the claim of the no-till movement is that any tillage of the soil is borders on sin. It's yeah. it's become a, a, a moral message. Yeah, yeah. I you know it's it's interesting. I have a habit of not ans- answering your questions directly. Um, I did I did a fair amount of of looking into this issue of um, you know no till is is so much better and and we and it's this pristine system that we you know for 20 or 30 or 40 years the field goes untilled and you build up this organic matter layer at the surface and you know the the soil uh, aggregate stability and all these things improve so much better when we do it that way um the the sad uh, reality is that a lot of that is 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 not representative of what goes on on the ground in the fields and farmers' places, uh, and and honestly, I think I think the the lack of uh, the lack of that claim, the claim that organic is the way forward, and permanent organic is the way forward over what farmers are doing, it, it is that is an example of where we're not getting out in the fields on farmers' places and asking them, why are, why are you doing it the way you're doing it? It turns out that the, the, the more common practice where no-till is practiced is that uh, no-till is practiced and it's rotational no-till. This is conventional ag now. I'm not talking about organic ag. Rotational tillage is an interest of organic farmers too. But this notion that we never till the field Certainly, there are fields that are never tilled, it's, but it's a small percentage of the no-till fields. In Minnesota, for example, um, the frequency of breaking a field back out after no-till is about 2.2, 2.3 years. 
two, two years in no-till, one year out of no-till, two years in no-till, etc., depending on whether it's corn or soybean that's going back in. So, so the reality on the ground is that, that, the, that farmers see a benefit to not having the fields be perennially no-till that has to do with such things as pest problem buildup. It has to do with such things as soil hardness and where um, root penetration is a problem for certain crops. Uh, you know, it has to do with how they get the fertility in the ground if they're not cover cropping because they're applying something and that has to get into the ground somehow. And they're concerned about the pH of the soils and that has to be addressed somehow. So, so that's the reality on the ground. And we took a pretty careful look at this in a paper that we published several years ago. Um, but, but I would also say that um, strict no-till proponents um, haven't looked at holistically at what an organic practice is and what an organic farm represents. If you're working in the Midwest where a typical field size is 200 or 400 acres and there's no field edge anywhere until you get out to the edge of that, and we actually mapped the field edges of all 750 Midwestern counties in a GIS analysis where we were looking at the effects of um, those field edges on the potential for pollination support for crops across all of the Midwest. In an organic farm, you've got lots of edges, lots and lots of edges. So when we think about something no-till and we think about, okay, no-till and then soybean no-till, no-till and corn no-till in a farm, in an organic farm, it's more likely to be something like 12 crops and um, an order magnitude or, or two more field edges or uncropped um, cover on the farmstead. That's all part of the carbon capture that's going on for that parcel of ground. So you've got the things going on in the fields, but you have also the things that are going on in the field edges and in the uncropped areas. Um, once we get down to the field level, um, we, it's, it's still the case that quite a few people don't, haven't fully wrapped their heads around the fact that deep burial of organic matter through tillage of cover crops and other crop residues, but in an organic farming system, deep burial of meaning plowing it or incorporating it with some sort of a disc or something um, is something that results in the carbon being preserved deep in the profile in a way that you obviously don't have deep burial and no-till of organic matter. So if you look at the organic matter profile of a no-till field, it's very high at the top and it attenuates very strongly as you go into the profile. In many organic fields, and this has been studied fairly widely, you will see a more uniform organic matter profile in the top worked uh, depth of the soil, maybe 12 inches or so, or 15 inches of the soil. And the deeper the carbon is placed, the lower the turnover rate of the carbon that's been placed deep. So the net effect of all of that at the field level where the crop is being planted, and that's outside of the edges and the non-cropped areas and things that, that I was mentioning, it's also outside of the perennial cover. 
grasses, forages, etc., that are that are commonly a part of a rotation in an organic farm, you have equivalent or greater amounts of carbon being buried in those fields with those practices. Now, is that to say that organic farmers aren't concerned? I mean, are they are they are they content to go with the kind of tillage intensity that is typically used in a, in an annual cropped field you know, on an organic farm, it is the case that there is a lot of interest on the part of organic farmers. And in fact, um, many of the participatory things we were doing and many other people are doing where the farmers are working with folks that are doing these coordinated trials are looking at different methods of um, reducing the intensity of tillage so as to increase um, well, so as to reduce the impact of tillage on driving carbon turnover rates in the soil. So I'm saying deep burial protects it, but there is no question that a lot of churning of the soil at the surface is something that we're working to try to reduce. And most organic farmers are, are all in on trying to reduce the intensity of that stirring of the soil at the surface. So I think that when you take it together, taken together at the farm scale, You've got a heightened level of crop diversity so that you've got carbon capture going over, going on over a broader window of the growing season. You've got most all of the annually cropped acres covered in a cover crop where that level of um, cover crop adoption is in single digits in other farms with, the, with these commodity crops. And that's carbon that's going back into the soil. And, and then you've got the deep burial and the longer residence time of the carbon. The net effect of, of that taken together is that you're going to be storing more carbon on a farm that's diverse, that's got perennial cover, and that's got annual cropping all part of the package. Great. Thank you. Yeah. That's a, a great beginning. You know, yeah. we have more. So, but I, I know that we got to end. So yeah. just my invitation, do you have any last words that you want to, that you want to share? So as a, a researcher and a teacher and a consumer of organic food, um, I am deeply grateful for the models of ecological integrity and sustainability that um, soil-based organic farmers have been for me in my work and in my life. Uh, farmers like Mike and Tara Brownbeck, Roy Brubaker, Jim Crawford, and many others um, have helped me see how ecological practices are used to um, used in concert to shape a truly sustainable agriculture that um, builds soil, that produces nutritious crops, and that does it in a way that is um, kind to the farmers, to the consumers, and to the environment. And I'm very 
deeply grateful for the, the lessons I've learned from, from those farmers. Some of, us, some of us need to be reminded that our perspectives on an issue like the work that Real Organic is, in, is engaged in, some of us need to be reminded that our work and finding our voice is important to help inform us, help inform society, make the right choices. When I first got on the board, uh, Dave Chapman and Dave Yu and several others, but particularly Dave actually said, you know, you have the podium right now. Uh, use it. Um, there have been times in my career where I've done better at using the podium. Uh, I think the work that Dave and the Real Organic Movement, the farmers, the board members, uh, the activists that work with Dave and his team um, are doing the things that are likely to move the discussion in a direction that will bring about change. It's clear sitting on the sidelines or uh, being lost in an issue and not finding your voice uh, plays, does little to inform clarity around the issues and action to bring about change. And I'm very thankful for Dave's work and for the work that Real Organic is doing on this really important matter. All right. Dave Mortensen, thank you so much for spending this afternoon with me and we'll share this with a lot of people. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Take the time today to leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org and by following our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when our guest will be Real Organic Farmer Zach Kennedy from Prima Farms, just north of Reno.